The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to be in Luke 15. I um, just want to explain how this is going to look this morning, and then we'll just get right to it. Uh, I'd like to read the passage, um, and then I'm going to work through things in a slightly different uh, sort of format. As I was working through the passage, there's any of like five different sermons that I wanted to write and preach, so I couldn't pick which one was my favorite, so I just did a little bit of each. Not that it's going to be exceptionally long, because my other uh, recent hobby horse is just trying to enter into a lot more dialogue. Uh, so what I'd like to do is going to give a basic summation of the story and talk through, through some elements that might be a little bit less than uh, obvious. Um, I want to move from there just to talk about Advent and the season that we're in. I think that this uh, passage is a good fit uh, for that. And then I'd like to end with just some spiritual transformation practices, which I think pair pretty well uh, with the passage itself. So um, if, as a listener, now I always wonder like how people engage in sermons because I didn't grow up in the church I grew up in the Catholic Church with uh, homilies, which were decidedly shorter than Protestant sermons. So the idea that there was a person talking for that, like my brain just can't retain that information. And as a teacher, I know that that um, can't happen either. So what I would suggest for you, and not that you, you're all the bastion of, of intellect and note-taking and good habits that I just don't have. So that's wonderful. Um, I am limited in my, in my capacity. So usually when I'm listening to a sermon, I'm listening for the, what's the one thing, uh, either a takeaway or a phrase or just something that God really uses to capture my attention in that moment. It could be any number of different things, just something that, that stirs me in a way that like, oh yeah, that's the thing. Or it could be like, that's something I wanna maybe ask a clarifying question about or any number of things uh, that go on there. So there will be, not so much narrative flow in today's sermon as much as a couple different things like buckshot. What I'd love to have you do is grab onto one of them, and I'm hoping to talk at you less and talk with you more. Uh, so if you have questions or observations, I'd love to enter into dialogue around that. So with that all said, I'm going to pray, and then I'll read our passage, and then we'll get to it. Let's pray together. God, as we've entered in uh, to worship this morning, we each come with our own uh, interior noise. Uh, we come with the busyness of the season, uh, stress at work, stress in family life, logistics, just all the things that come with this season, and we bring our own uh, interior noise to that. I pray in these moments that, that you've given to us, we would hear your word with clarity, uh, that there would be um, an open receptivity to what you have for us as we hear your word read. Uh, that you would guide our conversation, that you would speak to us by your spirit about the things that you're already doing in our circumstances, and we might, uh, again, hear your word in fresh ways. Amen. So we're in Luke 15, uh, and we're going to start to talk about the older son today. Um, so I'll read the passage, and I think it will be projected onto the screen. All right, good. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the sermons and servants and began inquiring what these things could be. 
And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the son became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So you started last week, I believe, talking about the parable of the prodigal son, um, and now we enter uh, the older son. Um, when Jacob and I were initially kind of parsing out who was going to do what, I had the option of either son, and I immediately go for the older son. Like, I cannot relate to the younger son at all. Um, even from the earliest days as a Christian, I remember the gentleman who introduced me to Christ, I was mentioning some of the stuff that I was reading, and he said, oh, parable of the prodigal son, who do you relate to? And I could not connect at all with the, the wayward brother who comes back. But when I read the story of the older brother, this I can uh, relate to. So I, I think that that will come out in a variety of ways. So the older son comes back to the house to discover the music dancing party. Now the older brother on the surface, he's just marked by this sense of duty. He's got this sense of self-righteousness, like he checks all of those religious uh, boxes. But when we dig a little bit below the surface, I think we notice a different sort of waywardness, right? That the prodigal son who wandered off I would suggest that the older brother is in every way just as wayward. It's just not quite as transparent or overt as the younger brother. So the younger brother obviously comes to the father. You know the story well. He asks for his inheritance so he can leave. He departs for a far country, squanders a living uh, there, and then returns. So where his waywardness is so obvious, the older brother's waywardness is, is less obvious. He's also wandering far from home. He just hasn't actually left in any way that's observable. And what do I mean by this? I think that a lot of us could relate to the notion that it is possible to be sitting in this space at this time and be a thousand miles away. I could be sitting across from a coworker having a conversation and not be present in any way. I can be standing in a worship service singing songs and have my heart not be there at all. And I don't know if I'm the only one who experienced this on a semi-regular basis, but I think that we can relate. This sort of waywardness is just more abstract. And that's where the older son is. Obviously, he didn't wander off. He stayed home. He did all the right things, said all the right things, was on time for dinner, told when he was going to be out past the streetlights being on. He did all the right things. But he shows clearly that his heart is no closer to the father than the son who wandered off and squandered the inheritance. 
And so it is with us. I think that we can often find elaborate ways of pretending religiously when our hearts and our minds are very far away. So that's one element. Both of the brothers are prodigal. The other one just has sort of a, a white-collar waywardness, a little bit less obvious. Next, we move into the responses of both the older son and the father, and these are instructive. Now, the response of the older brother when his brother comes back is he's indignant, like he can't enter the party. He wants an I told you so moment, and that didn't happen. And that can be just a gut-wrenching reality for a person. The younger son comes home and he's angry. So to have his carefully crafted world of duty and obligation not be enough, he's jealous. I think that's another way to say it. And I think James 4 talks about this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You don't have and you want. I think that there's an element of being jealous of the brother. And to have his worldview shattered that all of his goodness just wasn't, wasn't enough and wasn't what the father wanted in the first place. That's, it's just devastating. There's a lot to be said about the brother's response. I think on one level, we could very quickly say he's not behaving rationally, right? If we think about, just follow it through for a minute, it's not even his wealth, right? It's the father's stuff anyway. So this son of yours who, who devoured that wealth, like, yeah, maybe he's thinking about his inheritance, but it's not even really, it's not even his stuff. And I, I immediately think of Jonah, in these instances. If you've never read the story of Jonah, he's the one with the fish. But what I love about the end of the book of Jonah is that God very graciously causes this plant to grow and provide shade for Jonah. And Jonah's just out of his mind, like just so upset about this. And what I love about that is it doesn't have a happy ending. Like if you've ever read a children's Bible version, it's not true. Like you should actually read the Bible on that one. It doesn't end well. And that captures the depth of the human condition. Like that's who we are. Like God says, is it really right for you to be upset over this tree, which you had nothing, literally nothing to do with creating? And Jonah basically says, yes. It is right for me to be upset. And I just picture like every adolescent on the planet, like, yes, it is totally right for me to be upset about this. Like eighth, teaching eighth grade in the two weeks before, before the holidays is rough. But anyway, I can, that's kind of what I, what I picture. And, and this is what the brother looks like. Right on the surface, he's not behaving rationally. He's dismissive. Right? He's dismissive of the fact that his brother is home. And even look at the language in the story. <laughs> this son of yours, right? You notice the difference? <laughs> it's sort of like when the kids were younger, uh, when I get home, and the language was your son, and then I knew that something awesome had happened. But I couldn't say it in quite that way, but I knew that, that something, something was amiss. But anyway, he's dismissive, if not dehumanizing, right? He's not even acknowledging the relationship he has with his brother. It's this son of yours. It's accusatory. It's dehumanizing, I think. Now, to state the obvious, none of this comes from a very good place at all. Uh, the father responds with joy as the son returns, and the older brother's just having none of it. 
And we can see, if you were to, to back out to the entire chapter and go back to verse 1 of chapter 15, this is such a good fit for the audience that Jesus is speaking to. Present there are, on the one hand, you have these religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, you know who they are, the religious professionals. And then on the other hand, you have the tax collectors and sinners, the people who are hearing and responding to Jesus with joy. And the religious leaders just can't grasp it. They just can't have any of it. They're critical of Jesus for who he welcomes. They just can't understand how God could possibly welcome such people into his presence. And that's the older brother. And that's what I love about this story is that Jesus is telling the story to both audiences simultaneously. And some people are going to hear it as a word of joy and some people as a bit of a word of rebuke or a call back. That like this is how God always would have responded to people. This is how we should be responding in the midst of Jesus, but not the brother. Right? For centuries, the skill and the craft and the religious expertise has made them feel in their own eyes as though they're God's favorite. The idea that Jesus now claims to speak for God, which is major strike one, and the second that he actually welcomes wayward outsiders is just astonishing. They just can't handle it. The story would confront everything that they know to be true about their religious life. So there's the response of the brother, right? He's dismissive, he's dehumanizing. And then there's the response of the father. And what is, at least to me, the most compelling element in this entire story. And what I like about this, because I relate to the older brother, is even the older brother gets a word of gracious welcome. He doesn't really rebuke the son harshly, right? The father actually responds with gracious, graciousness, right? He, <laughs> I meant to say graciousness, not gracious graciousness. Like it's, it's just so strong that I had to use the same word as both adjective and noun, and then I'll move on. Um, he doesn't return the son's indignation. Like he actually, re he responds graciously. He tries to talk some sense into his older son in the most gracious way after he welcomes him back. And, and these words, like I, this to me provides hope that even a person like me could love Jesus. And this is just for me personally, I guess. Like I just, I just love the fact that even in this self-righteous, wayward, judgmental awfulness that the older son exhibits, the father can still be gracious. And he says, you've always been with me. Like, what a beautiful thing to say. In Greek, it's literally, you are always with me. And he tries to shift away from because this son of yours, he shifts and he says, because this brother of yours, that you're connected to him in the same way that I am. He says, all that is mine is yours. Like, what an incredible thing for a father to say. Even in the midst of this, this battle between the two of them. So even the self-righteous son is welcomed back. And God's orientation toward people, regardless of the form of waywardness they have, is joy. Like, that's what the whole thing is about. 
If you go back to verse 1 and you look at the lost sheep, you look at the lost coin, you look at the lost son, you will see the word joy and rejoicing over and over again. That's what the whole thing is about. And as we move on, as we shift gears a bit to discuss some of the Advent applications, I think this is worth reflecting on. So to talk about Advent, it's just a season that marks waiting. It marks hopeful expectation. Historically, it's always been a part of the church calendar, and it's designed to engage this sort of attentive watchfulness and awareness between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And it's always this tense time because we live in between these times that we know that God has set things right in Jesus and yet we are anxiously longing for the day when he sets all things right. Put another way, we commemorate the first coming of Jesus and we reset ourselves in the Advent season in hope of the second coming. And within that tension is the opportunity to grow in God's presence. It's a way of engaging the season it just carves out space for us to be receptive to, toward God uh, in the midst of all the other demands of the season, right? And we know that those demands are great. But it's a chance for us to grow in God's presence, to be intentional about our growth. And I'd like to just focus on two things here that I think are important to Advent, but also important in the passage and also important in our spiritual lives, and that's fear and longing. So when we discuss fear in this context, we're not talking about surface-level fear. Anybody scared of the dark? It's okay, you don't have to confess that. Uh, quicksand? I'm just giving my own. Like, I, I wasn't even thinking of other people. And clowns. Anybody willing to admit that I find clowns to be the most, yeah, they're awful. Like, the whole thing, I'm at a birthday party, no, I'm gonna go sit in the car, that's terrible, even as a middle-aged man. It's just, just dark. We're not talking about surface-level fear, even though it was a good opportunity for me to laugh at myself and say, why are you still afraid of snakes? You're like, whatever. Uh, there's only one poisonous one in the whole state. But I'm uh, moving on. Um, here we're talking about more a sense of existential fear. And where do we see fear in the passage? I think we see it in the older son's sense of scarcity, right? We have this scarcity economic where there's just not enough, right? The brother has this sense of obligation, the sense of having the father indebted to him, the sense of limited resources. You can't be joyful if that's your mindset. If you have a scarcity mindset, joy is just impossible. The brother coming home actually represents a threat, if you can think of it that way that when you have the mindset of scarcity, that's what you're looking at. There's just not enough. There's a fixed, limited amount of resources, and we all have to fight tooth and nail over those limited resources. And you can project that out to the religious leaders. Why are they so upset about Jesus? He's a threat to their religious way of life, which is one thing, but he's also a threat to their economic way of life. And that's what they say in John's gospel, basically, when they finally come up with the reason to execute him. If this keeps going, the Romans are going to come in and take our land. Like, it says it with crystal clarity in John, right? That's what they're upset about. It's a threat to their economic way of life. It's all of a scarcity mindset. 
So when we see the sense of fear, I think that's what the brother is looking at. Like, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that there's not enough of the Father, that there's not enough resources? And project out to ourselves, is there just not enough God? Like, is the future, is, is somehow are we projecting into a future where God isn't there? Any one of those things, I think, can kind of revolve uh, around the idea of a scarcity mindset. And we shift quickly from fear to longing. So if we take the inverse of fear, I think we can begin to speak of our longings. So if the fear is scarcity, then our longing is for abundance in any number of ways. If we have, like the older brother, this fear that we're going to somehow come up short in this religious competition, if that's our fear, then that colors everything. But the longing would be for celebration and welcome. Like I, so, and I'm sure Jacob talked about this last week, Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. I have it in my house, like not the original painting, because uh, then you'd all have to report me and I'd be spending Christmas in jail. But I have a print of it, um, and it really does capture this, this beautifully. And, and I, I guess I can relate to like seeing the older brother and, or the younger brother come home and my first thought, like this is how wicked my heart is, like, well, now what happens to the inheritance? Like that's my first reaction, like, okay, well, does it get split in half again? Like, I'm, I'm asking practical questions, which shows that I'm firmly in the camp of the older brother. But in Rembrandt's painting, you have this figure off in the distance who's barely there, who's kind of watching. It's, it's thought to be the older brother in some ways. Anyway, the picture's at my house. We could just sit and stare at it for like half an hour at a time and then talk about it. It really is like so much detail. I'm a huge fan of Rembrandt. Um, but... But the longing is for celebration and welcome. And I think the invitation here, at least as I perceive it, is, boy, I just don't understand that invitation to welcome. Like, I can understand it up here, but as a felt reality, I feel distant for it. But I do, I do long for it. And then no matter what form of waywardness yours takes, you're actually invited back, and there isn't ever anything you can do to win it. <laughs> There's no, uh, you're going to be so tired of winning in Jesus' kingdom. Like, there's none of that. Like, you can't win anything. It's been won for you, and you're just invited in this welcome way. And it's just this beautiful, uh, beautiful fulfillment of our longings to be accepted, to be loved, to have the Father, like, uh, just all those beautiful elements of the story that the Father's obviously looking for the Son to come home. Like, he sees him at a distance, and he runs off. That's just exquisite. Like, I don't know of another way to say it. Like, I can't even hardly talk about that scene. Like, just to picture the father running out to, to the son. And it doesn't even have to be, like, in a parenting context. Like, we know the depth of human love for friends and all of our relationships. Like, just picture that sort of love and affection and attention for another person. So Advent is a season that allows us to sit it allows us to sit with our longings and to enter into them and to embody them, to explore them openly before God. And I think this passage offers a pretty compelling opportunity to reflect on this. And just to be very concrete, some questions that might be worth journaling about are, which brother do you readily identify with? Like, we're in the Hope Center. Um, I am certain that there are people who do deeply resonate with the story of the younger brother to have gone far off and then to have returned. 
Like, that's, that's beautiful. Uh, so which brother do you more readily identify with? And how might that speak to your own uh, longings, right? And then to explore those things in more depth. So that's Advent fear and longing. Last, but certainly not least, is just to talk about a bit of a roadmap for spiritual transformation. I can't remember how I did these slides. That's why I'm turning around to... All right, so... Boy, that makes so much sense the way that I did that. Sorry. Um, the theme of the parable is joy. So I guess as I'm thinking about like what are some practices around spiritual transformation is we talk about life in the spirit, which we'll get to Galatians here in a second. And I want to talk about the sense of cultivating joyfulness. So the first thing in terms of spiritual transformation, the thing and maybe to just take a quick step back, the passage itself is really designed, like the, the storytelling on Jesus' part is designed for the religious leaders to look at this and say, I don't reflect that kind of joy. So the, this parable is actually a call for all of us to enter into this sort of joyfulness, right? The idea that our joyfulness as a people is a welcoming people, a welcoming reality for people who are, are coming back. So how do we cultivate that sense of joyfulness? Now, I have a slightly long quote here from Dallas Willard. It's one of those that, is it on the next slide? Of course it is. So the first thing I would say about cultivating joyfulness is it's about going below the surface. Now, you're all nice people. Like, I really believe that. I, I can't, I'm, I'm just looking around to make sure that yeah, everybody here is nice. Like, there's no, like, skipping over, like, well, that person's kind of mean. But no, you're all nice people. But I think we would all agree that our niceness is just not enough. And quite frankly, we're not always as nice as we are in church. I mean, I'm not. Maybe you all have, have the depth of spiritual insight, but, but maybe, maybe I'm different. So Dallas Willard, in his works, uh, will, and this is a long, I'd be happy to send you this quote, it's pretty long, but it's the best summation of Dallas Willard's stuff that I've found, and it's still too long and wordy, but it's really like the best I can do. So it is all framed around this idea of looking at stuff that's like the iceberg principle, like looking at the below the waterline stuff. Surface level stuff would be nice and be polite like that. It has to go deeper than that. So Dallas Willard says, love we hear is patient and kind. Then we mistakenly try to be loving by acting patiently and kindly and quickly fail. And that's what I mean, that our niceness just isn't enough. Like we try to act in patient ways, but we don't. We should always do the best we can in action, of course, but little progress is to be made in that arena, talking about spiritual growth, until we advance in love itself. And this is probably worth the whole quote, the genuine inner readiness and longing to secure the good of others. That's what love is. Next slide, please. Until we make significant progress there, our patience and kindness will be shallow and short-lived at best. I think you can just swap out love and put in joy. Joy is not happiness. It's not a glib thing. It's a very deep uh, reality. Part of it is having to define it, but some of it also is exploring, boy, why am I not a more joyful person? Because it is a fruit of the Spirit, right? 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's all those things. So the first thing I would say about cultivating joyfulness is it has to go below the surface. The second question I would ask for more of a concrete prompt is what specific ways am I rejoicing in others? Like we tend to think about joy as this sort of internal reality, which it is. But in this story, the joy is over people returning. And I hope you can see the difference. Like in what ways am I actively engaged in joyfulness over the positive godly, winsome, people-coming-back circumstances of other people. Not just a sense of like, I've got enough, this is all good, I feel joyful. It's how am I actively cultivating joy and rejoicing in others? And then last, in terms of cultivating joyfulness, in what ways am I responding to what the Spirit's already doing in me, right? Do I sense this call to greater levels of joyfulness? Do I see it around me? What might I be, what might the Spirit already be doing in and around me that I'm being called to respond to? So that's one, cultivating joyfulness. I think that on the pathway of spiritual transformation, it also invites us to reimagine God. With the story itself, we're invited to explore how Jesus reveals the heart of God in a way that may have been less than clear through the rest of the Bible. So if we can go, sorry, squirrel. One of the things we see in John's gospel is this, no one has seen God at any time. God, the only son who is in the arms of the father, he has explained him. Every single thing that we need to know about God is true and revealed in Jesus. And that's why spending as much time as we can in the Gospel of Luke, looking at these examples to see the most compelling figure in history. Like, he's awesome. And I'm not just saying that because I'm standing in front of a church with a microphone on. Like, Jesus is really a compelling figure. Like, he, he mixes it up with the wrong kinds of people. Like, he's arguing with religious leaders. He shouldn't be doing that. He's incredibly gracious. He transcends normal social behavior. Like, just, just compelling. And as we think missionally, what if this was sort of the way that we thought about God and lived it out as a community? And I think not only the fact that we follow a God who welcomes wayward people back, he invites us and calls us to be the same sort of people for the, those around us. That's awesome. Like, not just that God's so great and we just get to stand there and watch him do his thing, like some sort of overbearing dad finishing a science project for somebody. Like, God's over there doing his thing and we just all have to stand back and watch. Like, oh, it's so cool what he's doing. Like, no, he's actually inviting us to participate in our places of work, in our city, in any number of ways. Like, we don't just have to sit back and watch God do his thing. Like, we're actually co-creators alongside him, or Tolkien said sub-creators. So reimagining what God is like, that he's this welcoming God and calls us to the same. And the last thing I'll say is we're, we're allowed to reimagine what faith even is. So within this story and the New Testament as a whole, we're invited to this beautiful exhibit of a new sort of life. Like that's what Jesus' ministry is all about. It's not about being more religious or going to a different church. It's actually a completely different form of life. And this isn't a new thing, right? The Bible's already said this. If we can go to the next slide, 
This was all the way back in Ezekiel, of all places. Anyone ever read Ezekiel? Anyone ever made it to chapter 36? That's impressive, your heroes all. Um, where Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. This is what faith is. It's not about behavior management. It's not about moralism or just behaving better or having think people think that you're more polite than you actually are. It's actually giving you a new heart and a new spirit. And then uh, Jeremiah 31 this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So just very broad overview of life uh, in terms of spiritual transformation to cultivate the sense of joyfulness in all the forms that it can take to reimagine from this parable what God is like, and further, just to reimagine what faith in Jesus even, even is. Like, we're invited to all of these things. So, the idea that we're invited into this great and final project that God is doing, where he is actually remaking heaven and earth, and we get to participate alongside him, liberates us to be... Um, just sort of these crazy people that can joyfully welcome wayward people home. It's not about being right. It's not about I told you so. It's just we feel God's joy for wayward people coming back. God, whatever's been of value in the things that we've said here, I pray that you would cause those things to take root. Uh, I pray that you would inform um, just responses to, to questions and dialogue now. And we're grateful uh, for the portrait of you and the call that we experience here in this passage. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.